It's Tuesday, March 24th. I'm Oscar Ramirez in Los Angeles, and this is The Daily Dive. As the race to find treatments for COVID-19 intensifies, scientists have identified 69 drugs that may be effective in treating the coronavirus. There is no antiviral drug proven to be effective yet, and doctors can just offer supportive care, such as managing fever and using a ventilator in severe cases. Carl Zimmer, author of A Planet of Viruses, joins us for how scientists are scrambling to find a treatment. Next, back to biology class for why it's so hard to kill coronavirus. The virus itself isn't technically alive, and it uses proteins in our own bodies to create millions of copies of itself, in the process, making us sick. It's also worth looking back at history as some viruses have been responsible for some of the most destructive outbreaks in the past 100 years. Sarah Kaplan, reporter at the Washington Post, joins us for a biological look at what we're up against. Finally, amid the extreme social distancing that is being practiced, some are privately mourning special moments in life that have been canceled or postponed. People giving birth at this time are video conferencing to show their new child to the family, and funerals are also being canceled, forcing some to mourn alone. Ellen Byron, reporter for The Wall Street Journal, joins us for more. It's news without the noise. Let's dive in. In my direction, the federal government is working to help obtain large quantities of chloroquine, hydroxychloroquine, and uh, the z I think is a combination, probably is looking very, very good. Joining us now is Carl Zimmer columnist at the New York Times and author of A Planet of Viruses. Thanks for joining us, Carl. Thanks for having me. Right now, we're learning that scientists have identified 69 drugs to test against treatment for coronavirus. Right now, there's really no antiviral drug that's proven to be effective against a drug. A lot of stories that we're hearing are anecdotal. But when people get infected, really the best that doctors can do is offer supportive care make sure the patient has enough oxygen, manage the fever and cough and all that. And if obviously things get even worse, the use of a ventilator might be needed. But Carl, tell us about some of these drugs that scientists have identified that could possibly help treat this. So this is a virus nobody really knew even existed a couple months ago. So scientists have been just scrambling like crazy to understand its biology and to look for weak spots, ways in which they can attack it. And so they're taking a lot of different strategies to search for drugs that could stop an infection. These would be called antivirals. And, you know, there are antivirals that already exist that are used for all sorts of viral infections, and they're effective against some are for HIV, some are for hepatitis and so on. So it's possible that there may be antivirals that are already being tested on for other viruses that might work for the coronavirus. And then there are other people like the ones I wrote about in the New York Times who were saying, well, what are the proteins in our own cells that the viruses depend on? And can we give people drugs to block those proteins so that the viruses can't get at them? It's very tough. Scientists were investigating 26 of the coronavirus's 29 genes, and they found that 332 human proteins are targeted by the coronavirus. So, I mean, there's a lot of give and take there. There's a lot of different receptors. There's so much that goes into this, and doctors are trying to work at this breakneck speed to figure something out. We can read the genes of viruses with incredible speed now. A couple of generations ago, you'd be lucky to just know how many genes a virus had. You wouldn't be able to read them. So there is a lot of technology that can be brought to bear. So, you know, scientists are doing in 
two or three weeks what would have taken several years in the past. So that's heartening, but we just have to hope that they can get to a point where they're actually able to point to things that are going to actually save lives because certainly in the United States, we're exploding so fast that we don't have any time to waste. Tell us about some of the other drugs that have been seen to possibly be effective or could be candidates to be effective. There's things that are not related to antivirals, things that can be used to treat cancer, schizophrenia, drugs that can treat parasites. Uh, Chloroquine is one that we hear a lot about right now. Chloroquine is a drug that is needed for diseases like malaria or like lupus. There are people who need to take chloroquine for lupus right now. And if you're going out and hoarding chloroquine, you're depriving people who have lupus from something they need. It's selfish and it's stupid because nobody knows if chloroquine is actually effective. And if it is, they don't know what the right dose is. And there are all sorts of side effects. Chloroquine can mess with your heartbeat. So just thinking that it's going to be a panacea, you can pop like M&Ms is crazy. Chloroquine does look like there might be something there, just like a dozen of other drugs look like there might be something there worth checking out. Turns out that there are drugs for Parkinson's disease that target proteins in our cells that the coronavirus needs to use. So let's check these all out, but we have to check them out scientifically. One of the other interesting things I noticed too is, and we heard a lot about it last year, was the gene editing tool CRISPR. I guess there's some researchers that have might have tried to already use this technique possibly to treat coronavirus? There is very preliminary, very basic, and very creative research going on using CRISPR, maybe as a, as a possible antiviral. In theory, it's certainly worth exploring. And so into these very preliminary experiments, what scientists have done is they basically use this technology to create molecules that can recognize the genes of this coronavirus and then shred them to pieces. So you would imagine that, you know, a virus infects a cell, and if you've treated somebody with these molecules, and those molecules are in the cell, they'll they'll recognize this virus's genes, and they're making new copies, and just destroy them all. That would be the hope. It would be great, but that's way more preliminary than some of this other stuff that we were talking about. Carl Zimmer, columnist at the New York Times and author of A Planet of Viruses. Thank you very much for joining us. Thank you. Living cells, they have the ability to make energy, they move around, they have the sort of molecular machinery inside needed to like build proteins and do all the things that you need in order to live. A virus doesn't have any of that. Joining us now is Sarah Kaplan, reporter at the Washington Post. Thanks for joining us, Sarah. Thanks for having me. We're talking about the coronavirus COVID-19. And a lot of times when we're talking about this, it's almost like a, a step back into high school biology class. You know, we're, we're talking about viruses and how it impacts our bodies So we wanted to focus in on that a little bit and why the coronavirus and other viruses as well are so hard to kill. One of the things that's interesting about this is that they aren't alive. Viruses are not living things, so to speak. So, Sarah, tell us a little bit about that. So there is a debate in biology about whether or not we can even consider a virus alive because it doesn't do any of the things that a living cell normally does, right? Like living cells, they have 
the ability to make energy, they move around, they have the sort of molecular machinery inside needed to like build proteins and do all the things that you need in order to live. A virus doesn't have any of that. It depends on its host cell. And in the case of the coronavirus, it depends on us for all of those things. So it's just this little packet of genetic material, either DNA or RNA, surrounded by some protein. And basically what it does is it just goes into your cell, takes over, and then starts using all of the machinery inside of your cell to make more copies of itself. We talk about how long coronavirus can live on certain surfaces, like stainless steel and plastics. They say up to three days. In the air, it can live for a few hours. On cardboard, I think 24 hours. There's a lot of different things on how long it can live. But by itself, it's just dormant there. That's why they say if you touch stuff, constantly wash your hands because that moment that you touch it possibly and then touch your face, your eyes, your nose, then it gets into your body and then it has the potential to wreak havoc. Yeah, that's exactly right. That's why it's, you know, really all of these public health measures about being careful about your interact physical interactions with other people and also sort of touching things and then touching your face. The virus can't cause trouble unless it gets into your airway. So anything you can do to keep it out of your airway is the best thing you can do to keep yourself safe and other people safe because humans are the vehicle through which the virus spreads. So if a person coughs or sneezes and they are infected, they are spreading the virus back out into the world. Talk to us about what history has taught us about viruses. In your article, I noticed that some of the most destructive outbreaks of the past hundred years have all been viruses, big flus and SARS and MERS, Ebola, things like that. I mean, I think history really tells us that viruses are a force to be reckoned with and something that medicine is constantly having to catch up to. Because viruses, and particularly what's called RNA viruses, so these are viruses, including the coronavirus, that encode their genetic material in the molecule RNA instead of DNA, which is what we use and other animals use and, you know, most living things use. So when you make copies of RNA, there's no proofreading step in the process. So a lot of mistakes get introduced. And that means that when the virus is making copies of itself, it is mutating all the time really fast. And that makes the virus able to evolve really quickly and adapt to new environments. So one thing that you see if you look back at history of pandemics is that a lot of diseases, sort of emerging diseases that come out in a big way and then really are really destructive are diseases that existed in some animal population and then made the jump into humans. And because humans have never experienced this virus before, it can be really deadly and it can spread really quickly. And so we saw that with many kinds of influenza. We saw that with H1N1. Ebola is what's called, it's called a zoonotic disease, a disease that goes from animals into humans. So Ebola is one of those. HIV is one of those. And now this novel coronavirus, we think it came from either a bat or this scaly anteater called a pangolin or maybe some kind of combination of the two of those. And this capacity to mutate and evolve really fast and adapt really fast really works in the virus's favor. And that really explains why we see so many destructive viruses. Yeah, that's why every year the flu vaccine is just slightly different. They're trying to predict which strain is going to be the one that hits that year. And, you know, a lot Mm -hmm. of experts have said that we're a long way from this, obviously, but 
A lot of people, the population at large, will probably get COVID-19. And then after it kind of changes and evolves, hopefully in the future, we're speculating, obviously, it just becomes nothing other than a, a common cold to us. Uh, we've built up immunities to it, things like that. And as I said, long way off from that, but that's hopefully what people think might happen with this as well. Another thing that makes viruses hard to tackle is that because they're so simple, they don't have a lot of vulnerabilities. Like you consider a bacterial cell and a bacterial cell has a cell wall and then you can use an antibiotic like penicillin that breaks the cell wall. And antibiotics like penicillin work against a whole range of bacteria. But a virus like doesn't have any of that. It's using our machinery, which means that its weaknesses are our weaknesses. And a drug that affects its ability to reproduce could also affect us. And so that really complicates this matter of developing antivirals and also eventually the vaccine against this virus. But in the meantime, there is this idea that a successful virus, one that is able to persist and replicate itself for a really long time, actually isn't very deadly because deadly diseases tend to burn themselves out because the hosts aren't able to spread the disease around. And the idea is that the evolutionary pressure is going to be on coronavirus to become less virulent, less deadly, and that allows it to be more contagious. And there are other coronaviruses out there, cousins of this virus, they cause a common cold. So, you know, that's cold comfort for someone who's sick right now or who cares about someone who's sick or might get sick, and definitely for all of us whose lives have been upended by this. But the idea is that someday maybe it will be a less dangerous version of the pathogen that it is right now. Sarah Kaplan, reporter at The Washington Post. Thank you very much for joining us. Thanks for having me. We originally were worried about overflow crowd at the funeral home. And then as alarm grew over the coronavirus in his area, they downsized to a room for just 100. And then they finally realized that they wouldn't be able to hold a gathering. Joining us now is Ellen Byron, reporter at The Wall Street Journal. Thanks for joining us, Ellen. Hi. We're continuing talking about coronavirus, but wanted to take a step back and talk about something else. Everyone is practicing social distancing. Right now, the various states, a lot of states are closing down bars, restaurants, they're canceling all sorts of events. And this is leading to a more personal note. There's a lot of milestone moments that are happening in people's lives that are canceled because of this. And while people can say, oh, well, that's not important, the greater good, health, you know, these are things that are important to us personally in our lives. These are just another aspect of our lives, things that make us happy, things that are important to us. And we wanted to talk about just all these things that are getting canceled. There's a lot of stuff, people in school, proms and graduations, there's birthdays, weddings, funerals. Uh, there's a lot of things that are being canceled because of this extreme social distancing that we're having to practice right now. So Ellen, help us with this. Tell us some stories, because I know you've been talking to a lot of people going through this. It was stunning to realize how easy it was to find people who were very quietly mourning the loss of some personal milestones. No one was complaining per se because they realized that all of these cancellations are for the greater good. But there is some quiet heartbreak happening across the globe, really. I spoke with a high school senior, one of the captains of her basketball team. Her name was Morgan Ebel, and she had helped her basketball team in Farmington, Minnesota, 
get into the state championship for the first time in the school's history. And on a Thursday night, she received, she said, the biggest thrill of her life, which was winning the semifinal. And then Friday morning, the championship final was canceled. So she won't ever feel what that would have been like being in a state championship game with teammates who have been her friends and close players on the team since she was a fourth grader. So that was just a quiet moment of heartbreak for her and her teammates. Another one that was interesting that you mentioned in your article, funerals. Talk about how that one is affecting people. I spoke with a man who lives in the New York area and his father was in hospice care and he and his family were trying to figure out what funeral arrangements made the most sense. His father, he described as a larger than life kind of guy and had tons of friends and was a lifelong New Yorker, knew so many people. And they originally were worried about overflow crowd at the funeral home. And then as alarm grew over the coronavirus in his area, they downsized to a room for just 100. And then they finally realized that they wouldn't be able to hold a gathering. And when they called to cancel and after some painful deliberations, the funeral home told them, oh, we've had to stop offering any services. And so yesterday... They were planning to hold a burial for the father just with family members. And rather than gather after the burial for a lunch, they decided to do it virtually because all of them were being very careful about social distancing as well. And certainly they hope to plan a memorial lunch at a later date, but all of that immediate sense of community that you get in the mourning process isn't happening this time around, and they've had to very drastically cancel their plans. And I will say, as I talked to lots of different people and with different moments being disrupted, all of them expressed how complicated it is to figure out how you do feel about this, because you realize that there's far bigger tragedies unfolding and that all of this is indeed for the greater good, but yet you do still have some sense of disappointment that plans you thought you had in place were very much disrupted. Another one, pregnancies and births. I have a friend who I think she's due early, mid-April. So she has to give birth in this time right now, practicing social distancing. And how do you operate when your whole family wants to come over and celebrate that new life? Exactly. And you have a very limited moment in time where your baby is a newborn. And so often you want to gather those closest to you around to share some of that and also probably get a little help. And certainly any kind of gatherings are really avoided right now. I did talk to a woman who lives in Miami and she had her first baby on March 10th and she had to rely on a FaceTime call to tell her father about it and also about naming her daughter after her father's mother. And so a moment that would have been quite treasured by both of them in person instead happened over a phone call and plans for a naming ceremony for the daughter and a newborn photo session and as well as some close family coming by to visit. All of those plans have been changed again because of that. And all of these things will eventually take place, but the baby won't be just days old anymore. Ellen Byron, reporter at the Wall Street Journal. Thank you very much for joining us. Thanks for having me.
that's it for today. Join us on social media at Daily Dive Pod on both Twitter and Instagram. Leave us a comment, give us a rating, and tell us the stories that you're interested in. Follow us on iHeartRadio or subscribe wherever you get your podcast. This episode of The Daily Dive is produced by Victor Wright and engineered by Tony Sorrentino. I'm Oscar Ramirez, and this was your Daily Dive.